welcome back to Beyond the 18, a podcast where we talk tactics and break down the biggest games. I'm Patrick Duffy, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Rodrigo Plaza. How are you doing this week, Rod? I'm doing great. Uh, I feel like what's happened is instead of the Premier League slowing down, I've just sped up. I can now handle it. I can Mm. handle five, you know, seven-plus goal games. Um, I'm feeling the groove. And there was just so much that happened this weekend that I, I'm, I'm, I have, I've thought about it before as the show started. I was just going to make sure that I don't end up screaming into the mic as I'm often to do in, in, real pe- in front of real people. So hopefully I can keep my volume to a reasonable level. But let me tell you, the excitement levels, they're high. Hi. Agreed. 41 goals by my count, I think, in the weekend. Nuts. Uh, yeah. I, I'm feeling the same way, and I think actually a structural change that we've made as an organization, um, our producers, we had some conversations with them in, in meetings over the week, and we decided to split up the episode in two parts. So um, I think that's going to really help us in having some more like, okay, we can digest these things in, in greater detail in the length that we want. And uh, yeah, I'm excited about... Double feature, bro. Who doesn't love a double feature? Oh, I 100% agree. And I just want to be clear that I might have incepted the producers that way. I told them about how soccer is naturally a game of two halves, and they just ate that shit up. I, I just ate it up. So here we Ooh. go. First half, just just trying to get our rhythm here. Second half, come for the big goals. You know, that's what we're, that's what we're all about here on Beyond the 18. Um, wow. Transition. Speaking of goals, Sheffield United got their first goal. Uh, quick little <laughs> round of applause. Quick little round of applause. Single tier. Against Arsenal. That was something that I said was guaranteed to happen. It happened. Thank you. Um, that's going to be our first game that we're going to hop right into. Arsenal 2, Sheffield United 1, Trouble in Paradise, Civil War. Twitter was blowing up. How is Rodrigo and Patrick's relationship going to last through this you know, really heart-wrenching game? Um, I'm going to be honest with you, uh, watching this game, uh, first, let me go down the goals real quick for folks who didn't watch the game, no goals in the first half. Um, and then Arsenal comes out kind of swaying in the second half, Bukayo Saka scores this little header goal, uh, in the 60th minute off of a nice cross from Hector Bellerin. That goal actually made me laugh because Saka does this little like bunny hop jump. He jumped maybe like a quarter of an inch off the ground and, you know, nods at home. Um, and then Pepe scores another goal in the 64th minute uh, to put Arsenal up 2-0 before McGoldrick gets, I believe, his first goal in the Premier League and also Sheffield United's first goal of the season uh, in the 82nd minute to kind of make a, a little bit of a nervy finish. Um, that first goal that Saka scored, the announcer said, that's a classic Arsenal goal. There's some really nice interplay. Willian, El Nene, Aubameyang, Bellerin, all kind of connecting and, and getting the ball over to Saka in space on the left. And then Pepe, I watched this game and then I rewatched it in French uh, because that was the... Only way you can find it, baby. The French, for some reason, don't care about copyright whatsoever. Every game I rewatch that's not live or recorded on DVR some way is always in French. It's yeah, incredible. It, was, it was paid for content. Don't worry. Don't worry. Uh, but in both the English and the French uh, announcers talking about this, they mentioned Thierry Henry when they were watching this goal. And I got to say, that made me feel something as an Arsenal supporter 
Nicola Pepe has been disappointing, uh, to be totally honest. And I think we've been waiting to see him kind of break out and do exactly this. And he just came on and he scored like very, very quickly. I think he scored seven or eight minutes after coming on in the second half. And he just has this amazing run down the right and torches the Sheffield defense to score. Um, I got to be honest, though, watching this game, that first half was like sucking the soul out of my body watching Arsenal play. I thought they were playing in a really controlled fashion on defense. Maybe a little foul on David Luiz early on. Maybe should have been a red card. Maybe. Um, but in general, I thought they were, they, they were organized, and I thought defensively they were playing very well. But there was just no creativity. There was nothing moving forward. Um, and it felt really concerning. And it felt like a type of performance I've seen a lot from Arsenal recently where they struggled to break down teams. And it's just looked very limited. And then the second half, they, they, they really kind of pulled it out. And I have to say, Pepe coming on felt like it made a big difference. Thoughts on the Blades, though? Struggling out of the gate and, and some, some concerns for sure. Yeah. I You know, I felt like in this game they did some of the fundamentals pretty well. I thought they defended pretty well. I thought they even, you know, kind of like had some – some buildup that was okay. I just feel like they really have struggled in the attacking third. Um, this game was was good because I, I really got to watch the full thing and, and kind of soak it in a little bit more. But I feel like what they, you know, generally try to do is try to get the ball wide. They sometimes, you know, will be in the countering situation. So they're kind of in a fast break, making some nice combinations. That's kind of what they like to do, get wide and then send a ball in uh, for some bodies in the box. And... They were kind of struggling, I feel like, to get enough balls into the box, also to get heads on the, heads on the ball. And you know, when when that's kind of the only way that they're really, you know, attempting to attack or like that's their path. It, when it, when it's not working out for them, there's really not a whole lot else going on. It, it, and I felt like the game was pretty even for a good, you know, for the first yeah. half, solid, even yeah. game. And the McGolder goal definitely feels like just kind of out of nowhere, honestly. For yeah. both him as a player, individual, and then for the team, you know, like it was a nice shot and and everything, and it was well deserved goal. Um, but at the same time, that I mean, it was just kind of like this little blip on the radar that was that would just happened to be a nice shot. So I definitely feel like uh, Sheffield has some work to do in the way that they attack defensively. I think they're pretty solid. I thought this game was solid. You know, I'm not like looking at them really worried from this game alone, but the fact that they haven't been able to get a win, this is their first goal scored. I mean, I'm probably just telling people something they already know that, you know, they need to figure out how to score some goals, how to be a little more dangerous. Um, but otherwise, I felt like it was pretty even. And it was a, it was a, I think there were less opportunities on both sides in this game um, than, than pretty much any other game <laughs> that we watched, uh, I feel like. So, yeah, that was a, that was, that was an interesting game. Hopefully, my blades can kind of find some inspiration moving forward. I, I do have to say, I think as an Arsenal fan, it's just a big adjustment watching a team that's sort of becoming defensively competent and offensively impotent. I'm not used to that at all. I'm really used to watching an Arsenal team that's so creative and so incisive in the attacking third and really like pushing and, and, and making some great chances and often failing to convert, but being very creative uh, and then doing idiotic things in the back, whether it's David Luiz running into Socrates or like even going back to, you know, mistakes by people like Koscielny, 
the the list of Arsenal inconsistent center backs is long. So it's kind of weird to be like Arsenal defended pretty well. <laughs> and um, I, I don't know. I feel like as a fan, it's taking me some time to adjust to that, but happy to get three points and continue on um, pressing for hopefully top four. Two teams that I don't know are going to be pressing for top four um, played in our next game, Rodrigo. And I want to throw that one over to you. Yeah, Wolves-Fulham was an interesting game. Also very even in a certain sense. Um, Wolves definitely dominated possession in the first half. It was kind of an interesting start. Um, I was trying to figure out what was going on. If you watch this game, what you're going to notice probably right away is that it seems like there's kind of, you know, about four dominance in the beginning, both teams kind of pressing each other. Um, but everybody seems so spread out. I mean, so spread out. Like, yes, they're pressing, but they're so spread out. And I was like, why is this happening? You know, like other games, it seems pretty, pretty clear, like defense gets compact. The other team comes, tries to spread it. They lose the ball. They get compact. Right. It, but that wasn't really happening. And what what I realized was that both teams were doing uh, two things. They were both pressing. But they were also both trying to play possession. And when you play possession, right, you want to make the field big, so you spread out. Uh, and then when you press, you usually want to be compact. Um, so you kind of get all close together and press the ball. But the ball kept getting turned over, you know, in these like 2v2 kind of pressure situations. So the teams never really coalesced to be like compact. And so it was kind of, it was a little crazy uh, in the very beginning. But then it evens out. Wolves kind of gains the, 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 the foothold that they need, starts to play a little bit more possession. Wolves struggles to find scoring opportunities in this game. They have a few that are big, but they're more due to Fulham mistakes and their own creation. Um, I think the first big one comes for Semedo in the 27th minute. Um, there's a bad pass out of the back from Fulham. Uh, they get Wolves get the ball on the edge of the 18. They take a shot. It's deflected, and Semedo on the opposite side comes flying in to take the shot. That was a 1v1. You know, everybody expects him to make that goal. He shoots it wicked hard, but keeper gets a hand on it. It goes down, and, if, you know, without depth reception, it literally bounces so high it looks like it goes over the goal, but actually it just goes a little bit wide. But that should have been the first goal of the game, I think, probably right there. But again, from Fulham's mistake. Um, you know, Fulham, on the other hand, also has some opportunities in the box. Um, and, and an interesting fact about this game is that Fulham actually ends up with a higher expected goals than Wolves, uh, which yeah, I don't know if you would have put together just from watching it from beginning to end. Um, but they do have a few opportunities um, that they also just can't quite put away. Uh, and the second half is really kind of starts off much the same way. Um, there's a long ball over the top that uh, Fulham, uh, that Jimenez runs onto, but he just can't finish it. And the Fulham keeper tries to play the ball out wide, but they lose the ball near half field. Wolves counter immediately. And there's another, of course, block shot, right? And the ball bounces wide, but this time uh, I believe Neto's there, and he just hits it hard, other side, and that's their goal. So it's kind of a sparse game for big opportunities um wolves is trying to do a similar thing get the ball wide to make the cross and they're trying to play a lot of possession um but they just they just don't they just don't seem as dangerous as they could um and they just can't get the head they're missing the head on the ball they're just not quite connecting there um and they, and they kind of struggle um i think that i think that in the last third of the game 
you do see Fulham get some more chances, and it gets a little scary for Wolves. Wolves are to play a lower block after they score that goal, and I think, yeah, like, the you know, around the second, third of the game. And it, it, gets, a little, it gets a little scary, but at the same time, um, the, it all comes down to this one play where there's a free kick by Wolves. Keeper from Fulham punches the ball out. Uh, Wolves decides to press this ball on the sideline, and for the first time, maybe not the first time, but essentially the first time in the whole game, Fulham threads three passes together that breaks that press. And they send a long ball to Mitrovic up top, and he's essentially alone. So he's running into, into the box with like one defender with him, one other recovering. And I can't remember, or I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, but I think his camera is with him and gets the ball wide open in the 18. Wide open. And just completely messes up the shot um hits it low like hits it on the ground not that hard right at the goalkeeper easy scoop and that's it and that was their chance right there to tie that game but they kind of blew it um so you know you look at expected goals and they had their shot but unfortunately just couldn't convert um and yeah i mean i think i think that i think that uh wolves is just wolves is it's not that they're playing defensively. It's just that they they have a very clear structure on how they want to play, and when that's not working, it, it's it, it's not a lot of opportunities that they're seeing. So, thoughts, Duffy, on the game? Yeah, th- this game was played at the same time as the Arsenal game, and like they were cut. You know how sometimes when you're watching, they'll cut to the other game to show some highlights. And I was watching Arsenal, and they kept cutting to Wolves to show like a. Uh, decent chance that was just sort of deflected by a defender outside the 18 i was like (laughs) exactly these are two very dull games kind of happening at the same time Mm -hmm. um couple notes that i had from this game uh adama Traore was benched by wolves after a pretty poor showing last week against west ham that's an interesting plot to follow it could just be squad rotation it could just be matchup but um he's someone who's been he had a great season last year. People rate him really highly. Definitely something to keep your eye on. Uh, my other thought is just Fulham. Like, where are the points going to come from for them? Um, they need to create more chances, and they need to be more clinical in defense. And this Wolves team has not been amazing, so this seemed like a good opportunity for them. That being said, they're playing Sheffield, Crystal Palace, West Brom in their next three games. And I think those are going to be three huge games for them in deciding relegation. I know it's early, but like you fall behind the pace of the Premier League, you fall behind, and it's really hard to catch up. So those are going to be three huge games for Fulham in the coming weeks after the international break. One piece, one piece I'll add about uh, about Triori is I think it's I think it's an I think it's a challenge. I mean, I don't know exactly why. For example, we don't know why he's not starting this game, but. If, if I had to guess, at least from the tactical point of view, you know, Triori is a great player. Um, I think he could probably fit in any tactical situation fine, but definitely, you know, his speed and strength is best used when he's flying down the wings to counter the team, to counter the other team. And when they play a more possession style, you know, I don't know that you would get as much out of Triori as you would hope. Um, and I feel like if they're going to continue to try to play this possession, um, you know, it might not quite suit him, or at least they might not play him because they don't think it does. So I, I'm wondering if that's the reason why, um, but definitely something to keep track of. Um, so 
that was that was the Wolves game. But brings us to our next game, which was uh, far more exciting from what I remember. Uh, Everton versus Brighton. Duffy, you want to handle that one for me? Yeah, uh, Everton four, Brighton two. Um, Everton remain undefeated through four games. I'm sure all pundits and analysts predicted that one. 2020, no doubt. Um, we, you, you said in your predictions, you thought there was maybe some upset potential in this game, but Everton are going to edge it out. And that nails it. That totally describes what happens. Um, goals for Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Yeri Mina, and a brace for James Rodriguez um, really set the pace for Everton offensively. And on the other side, a uh, nice goal for Neil Mappé and then a, just a scorcher from Basuma in extra time to make the two goals for Brighton. I think in general, when I was watching this game, um, I felt like Brighton were starting to create some chances. It felt pretty even kind of going back and forth. Um, but I felt like Brighton kept really trying to attack on the, on the flanks and really play on the outside and to attack the uh, right back or left back, the fullbacks for, for Everton. And I've said this before, and I'm going to continue to say this with Everton, but I really do think that the way forward to to beat this team and to attack this team is playing more through the middle of the field. Um, and James Rodriguez is an amazing creative player moving forward. He's a good offender, um, a r- really good offensive weapon, and you saw that on full display in this game. He was really sensational in both his distribution, his service, and the goals that he scored. Um but I do think he is a little bit of a defensive liability and squads should be really targeting and trying to exploit that. But Brighton's game is to kind of maybe, you know, distribute out wide and try to bring the ball back in across back in like they did pretty well against Manchester United. And that was working. I mean, you know, Brighton converts two goals. That's pretty good output. Um, but I thought that they could have been maybe a little bit more clinical and a little bit more direct in their attacking him. The, other note on the other side, um, two things I'm thinking about Everton. I don't really want to overreact to them so far. I think this is a quality side, and I think they are going to be competitive for top six and, and top four. Um, I do think they've had a pretty favorable run of games. They haven't really had to play anyone too difficult. Um, that being said, I, there, there are a few concerns looking at that squad. Rich Arlison left this game with an injury and that's been something that's been bothering him for the past couple of weeks. And I think that would be a serious concern for them going forward if they were to lose him. And then at the back, Jordan Pickford is looks really, really unsteady. And I watched this game on NBC and Tim Howard was one of the commentators. For those of you who don't know, Tim Howard, USMT, MNT goalkeeper. Um, And he also played at Everton for quite some time. Really good goalkeeper at Everton. I don't know if you'd call him an Everton legend, but well-respected there. So his opinion on Everton goalkeeping seems like pretty relevant. So it's cool to get him to hear, hear him talking about Pickford. And I could tell he didn't want to say it because he didn't want to tear down Pickford too hard. Um, but he was clearly showing some real doubt about Jordan Pickford's confidence and his ability. And one of the goals, the goal that Malpe scored, came directly off of a Pickford mistake. And I think some people were making a little bit more out of that mistake. I played keeper in U12. What up? What up? Green team. Let's ride. Um, green and team. When I, was, I love green team. When, when I was a keeper, you know, it's pouring rain. 
the ball gets really slick. You're going to drop the ball sometimes. It's not that crazy. And if you watch this game, it was absolutely pouring rain. And he catches the ball, and it kind of just, like, pops out coming back down. And, like, yeah, that's a confidence thing. And, yeah, he should hold on to that as a Premier League keeper. But at the same time, it's sort of like, you know, mistakes like that can happen. I will say, though, his confidence definitely looks to be shot. And um, that's a concern. You cannot compete for a Premier League title um, and, and maybe not even compete for top four if you don't have a confident keeper between the sticks. Thoughts on this game? I completely agree with that. That both of those points, Pickford is definitely, I think, the weakness. Uh, I think the, the the biggest vulnerability. I'll put that the biggest vulnerability for the Crystal Palace team, and then that injury on Richarlison is also pretty worrisome, given that there's a history to it. Um, I think that both of these teams played a really similar style. Both kind of like being rather aggressive uh, and and trying to trying to press and counter each other very, very rapidly. There was a lot of transition at certain points in the game. Everton definitely has the the foot up there. Uh, they were really common at James in the beginning. There were like I don't know a string of like three or four fouls like all on him. Um, and I kind of want. I mean, he 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 definitely kind of threw himself a couple times early on. I almost felt like he was doing because he knew that he was going to get more later, and he needed to establish this credibility. Hey, I'm getting hit. Like, keep keep an eye on me. Um, but uh, you know, to 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 his credit, he still was able to come out a couple beautiful goals. Um, great combination play. He's definitely a a playmaker. Uh, uh, a catalyst, I would say, a catalyst for that team. He, he, when the ball comes through him, he's able to do some really good things. Put some dangerous balls, you know, through and come in, you know, following for a shot. It's good stuff. So I'm excited about that team. They played well. Um, yeah, they brought out Lamptey kind of early in the game. I'm not sure exactly why, but he had a couple. Cro- he had a couple crosses into the box in the first half that were great. Great. I mean, a couple that, you know, could have been goal scoring opportunities, maybe, you know, still people, more more people in the box that were defenders than 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 forwards, but still, you know, great crosses. So I, I was confused about that, but you know, all, all told it was it was it was a good game, both sides. And uh that last goal oh, was uh, I mean Bless it meant her. nothing, but it was, Watch that it was a zinger. It was a zinger. I was I was kind of happy to see that. Um yeah, I was also wondering why Lamptey got subbed off at half. We've been raving about him, and he played well. I, I didn't think he was playing poorly. I, it could have been like a tactical thing. Maybe it's also a fitness. They've had a, a lot of games in a row. That's true. That's true. Um, I think we both really like Brighton. They've had some tough fixtures, so you know, not getting results against Chelsea United and the strong Everton team. I'm not necessarily going to overreact to that or fault them, but I will say – at a certain point, you got to turn good performances also into three points or into a one point in a less ideal scenario. Like if you want to stay up, you got to start, you know, really converting and winning these games. So, yeah, they've got the measurements. Some- the measurements of success are quite crude when it comes to the actual Premier League table. You know, it's like yeah. it doesn't matter how well you played, you got to get the points. And the, this would have been a game to get one of those points. I'll put it that way. Would have been one of those games. Um. Flipping over to uh, another game and our, our last game before we're going to take a quick break, uh, Chelsea Crystal Palace. How are Ooh, you feeling che- about this one? Uh, Chelsea Crystal Palace. So this was a game that I was excited to see. I know that you had Me mentioned too. that Chelsea might be able to come out, shell Crystal Palace. 
Uh, the score, the score definitely says that they did four zero uh, to Chelsea. Um, I think that I did. I call this one for an upset. Was that? Was that did I say actually? Upset? Actually, I think we both thought that this game would be an upset. Uh, I, I, I wish I could give myself credit for that, but we both said we thought Crystal Palace had a good chance here. Yeah, I, I, I. So, so let's let's talk about how the game went down, right? So Chelsea comes out in the first half. Um, they're definitely the possessor from the jump. So I watched this first half, and first of all, it felt good. I was like, oh, Chelsea's playing well. And then I thought about two things. I thought, how are they playing well, and why do I think that, right? So first of all, how were they playing well? They were keeping the ball. They were maintaining possession. Things looked cool, calm, and collected. And the defense was holding that ball for a lot of, for a lot of that possession. Um, and that made me feel good. And I was like, why does that make me feel good? I'm like, that's because I remembered that the last game they played, that was a huge issue. And it felt like the first half was kind of about reestablishing their foundation, kind of being like, okay, right? We're Chelsea. We've got the players. We've got the personnel. Let's connect. Let's just connect. And they were just kind of playing, you know, some almost like keep away in a way uh, to just kind of build that foundation, kind of ramp up until they got their rhythm. The first half was fairly uneventful in that way. I don't think there were any cards. Um, There weren't any goals. Uh, Both teams, you know, both kind of, you know, waiting to see when the opportunity to strike would arise, when a big mistake would happen, and neither quite getting that, um, you know, getting getting that in the first half. Uh, I, I felt like, like I said, I, I just felt like this was something that they were doing to kind of just reestablish that base. Um, one thing I noticed right away, though, Chilwell looked mm-hmm. excellent. He was excellent on the outside. And so did Azpilicueta in the way that I'm more familiar with because I've seen him play on this team. I know how he plays. And even on the outside, you, you, you know, he, he was kind of old stock Azpilicueta. But Chilwell, you know, a new, new for me to see, at least in this context for sure, played really, really well. Both of them were sliding up into the space on the outside, challenging balls, doing a great job there defensively. It definitely brought um, some excitement. And Chilwell is, also is sending some beautiful balls from from back from the from the back left i mean it happens pretty much all game but he has a few diagonal balls that are really excellent second half comes around um and it pretty much looks just like it did in the first half except uh, as i said they've kind of warmed up right ramped up um and in the 50th minute uh there's a i think a a missed clear by by somebody Sako. yeah yeah, and Aspilicueta, I believe, is the one who shoots it, and it kind of there's a deflection, um, and then it bounces in the box, and uh, Tammy kind of gets in and fights for it, and it, it's bouncing around in the back of the six, and Chilwell, of course, on his like you know knight on his on his white horse, comes in and just slams a, a whistler right into the right into the back of the net, clean too. I mean, no hesitation, comes in, hits it clean, doesn't try to do anything extra with it. And I feel like he's celebrating before it even goes in the goal. Like he knows, boom. That, um, so that was his debut too. That's a great way to introduce yourself. Absolutely, plays great defensively, scores that goal. Um, of course, in response, Crystal Palace starts to play a little more aggressive. They start pressing a little higher. Chelsea definitely kind of invites it, maintains that possession, um, and then again, essentially, what like ten minutes later, um, Chilwell gets this corner. And he sends it in. It comes back out. They send it back to him. He gets it again and essentially just sends in another long ball. And Zuma just gets above everybody and just, boom, buries it again to zero. Um, And, you know, honestly, Chilwell's the man, I think, in both of those plays. He's the one who's there to pick up the trash. He's the one who's sending that cross onto Zuma's head. Like, it's, it's excellent. And then 
you know, as the game progresses, there are these two PKs that come up. Um, both of them felt pretty light. I mean, I can see, I can see the how the technical nature of it being a penalty kick. It's in the box. It, it could have been a foul, but both of them seem kind of light. Nothing too, like a huge, you know, mistake or missed tackle that just takes a guy out. Um, and of course, Jorginho buries both of them. The same, same direction, same everything. Like deja vu for both of them, or for the second one. Um, and it goes down four zero. I think. The PKs aside, I think this game feels and it felt and looked more like a two-zero win than a four-zero win. Yeah. Um, and but but I but I say this, I think that I think that Chelsea look 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 a lot stronger. Um, you know, in 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 the part that we were worried about last week. Um, the question now is just about that attack. Like, okay, great, foundation is built a little bit better. You know, now how are we going to start to be? You know, find that find that offense, and maybe Chilwell's a part of that answer. But I don't know that he's going to be the full piece. What, what were you, you have any thoughts about this, Debbie? I thought this was an excellent game for Chelsea. I thought Frank did an excellent job in squad selection. Um, I thought Jorginho was excellent in this game. There were some rumors of him going to Arsenal, and I was like, oh God, please no. And then I watched this game, and I sort of was talking myself into it because in the first half, he was really the only person who was distributing. And creating chances for Chelsea, and and I thought he looked really solid. I, one thing that really struck me in this game is if you had Marcos Alonso, Antonio Rudiger, and Andreas Christensen playing with Aspilicueta instead of Kurt Zuma, Thiago Silva, and uh, Ben Chilwell, I think that this game would have gone exactly the same way in reverse. Like that mistake that Sacco made, I picture. Antonio Rudiger making the exact same mistake and Zaha scoring the goal. Like that That's cross. An interesting thought experiment. I like this. Well, that cross coming in, it's like mm. Chelsea has had a lot of problems with Keppa in net. He's the other piece I was missing. Sorry. Cause uh, Mendy, this was his premier league debut for Chelsea as well. True. Very, very solid. I mentioned that. Very, very solid. solid. Um, that cross comes in from a, a corner kick for Crystal Palace and it's Kepa making a meal of it and someone heading it in. <laughs> so I, I think that the squad upgrades are really starting to look like they're gelling, especially in the back. I've got questions about Kai Havertz. I'm being told by so many people to like, he's below, you know, really going to blow you away. He's like this amazing player. I, I'm waiting and I, I know it's going to take some time for him to adjust and figure out his role. But I, I don't really see a ton happening for him. Uh, so far absolutely i i hear you on that i think there's two things though that we shouldn't forget to mention about this game number one uh why did crystal palace struggle because obviously we've talked plenty about chelsea at the end of the day their biggest threat and sometimes their only threat is zaha and in this game they really struggled to find him especially in space and you can see by the end of the game that he's getting frustrated about it himself um has kind of a kind of an ugly foul that's not a huge deal but you can see that he's frustrated about it and that's i think a little bit of a tenuous situation for crystal palace right zaha's a great player but if he's the only threat and he's getting taken care of then that's that's going to be a challenge right because that's not a hard thing to learn and play to the second thing is that uh i believe and you have to correct me if i'm wrong that this game where Mendy starts was Keppa's birthday. Oh. Uh, 
<laughs> and it was hilarious because I think that they only panned to him one time in the whole game, and it was just to say that it was his birthday. And it was the <laughs> in in the context of everything, it was just it was the perfect comment. And here's Keppa, it's his birthday, and back to the game. <laughs> you know that Charlie Brown music where it's like yeah, that was playing in my mind watching him sit there. I was like, oh, yes. that's so brutal. I know. And they, and, oh, actually, they did mention one more thing. As they panned back to the game, they said, and here's Mendy starting the game. He was only 50 million less <laughs> than Asmolin. <laughs> oh, it was brutal. I, I, you know, like I said, we've seen that man be traumatized on live te- television. I think he's probably had enough. But anyways, interesting game. Uh, Chelsea comes away with the win. Hopefully they can keep that momentum into their next games, build on it. Um, I, I, my last moment, my, my, my last comment will be this. Ziek, when Ziek gets back into the equation, I think he's going to solve a lot of problems. I don't know why I have such confidence. It's probably just my 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 deep love of Ajax in general, but I really think he's going to be a change maker for them, and I think he's going to make people like Kai Havertz and Timo Werner more dangerous. You took the words right out of my mouth. I think that was my last note from this game. I really like Callum Hudson-Odoi. I think he's a great player. I think he's a really exciting young player to continue to watch. The way that he plays when he plays that position, though, is he really likes to make these runs across the top of the 18. He really likes to dribble into the middle of the field and then kind of lay it off. Mm-hmm. And it, it can be super great. It's not particularly creative in the way of like switching the field, which is what you want. You want Timo Werner getting the ball ping, pinged over the top on the left and coming in on the box and like cutting it at the top of the 18. So I think Ziyech... However you pronounce his name, he's he's yes. he's he's going to switch that up. And I think Absol- the distribution is, is going to be there. And you you make me think of one other thing, which is that if we're going to put Callum Hudson-Odoi in this rotation, which I think you should, because I think he's quality and I think he can be a game changer. He can score goals. I mean, I think at the end of the day, that's the thing he can really do that sometimes you just need. I would make him in rotation for Havertz um, because I think it puts a little bit of a flame under Havertz. He knows that if he's not performing, then Cal Hudson-Modoy is there. Young guy, got nothing to lose, that kind of – but you put him with Ziyech, who's going to be a little bit more playmaker. I think whether you play Havertz or or uh, or Callum, Ziyech is going to find a way to combine with them. Hopefully, you know, give him a little bit of time after this injury, but he's going to find a way to combine with them and make either of them look better than they already do. So that, that to me would be the rotation, moving them in and out, maybe putting him in a wider role, but still the substitution being one for one there. So we'll see what happens, you know, once he gets healthy. I'm excited to keep watching Chelsea, but right now, listener, we are going to take a quick break. listener welcome back we are continuing on with our games from premier league week four moving on to west ham leicester west ham three leicester zero uh wild game this game kind of has my head spinning a little bit because i get into the mode of being like okay so west ham beat leicester leicester beat manchester city manchester city tied Leeds, Leeds lost to Liv- so I start doing like these crazy like <laughs> you know tracking yourself, the serial Duffy. killer like trying to do the <laughs> rankings in my brain in my brain and um this game really messed me up because I'm like 
wait, didn't Newcastle beat West West Ham? Like, okay, so Newcastle top of the table, clear, de- decided. Um, yeah, so uh, a really quality win for West Ham against a lesser side that has looked really strong, previously undefeated, just coming off beating Manchester City, as I mentioned. Um, so I had a lot of thoughts about this game. I guess my primary notice and the thing that I really wanted to focus on was something tactically that West Ham did that I thought was super interesting. Jamie Vardy, we've talked about him a lot on this podcast. He's an excellent, 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 super intelligent uh, offensive player who's just been knocking in goals this season, a real threat, continually a real threat. And West Ham decided that they were going to man mark him. So West Ham is playing a pretty, you know, deep set block, their organizational shape, actually a little bit higher up than they have in previous games. Um, but still, really that defensive formation. But then they just have one of their center halves, Agbana, man mark Vardy, basically the whole game. And it really kind of threw Vardy off, I felt like, his rhythm. It seemed like he was still making some of his runs, but the timing wasn't quite as clean. Um, and Leicester just didn't, I don't really think that they had a ton of ideas about how they were going to go about breaking down this like new system. I don't think that they had prepared for a man marking on Jamie Vardy. Um, the way that the game went, Mikel Antonio, target man early on, he gets this nice ball to him over the top, and he scores in the 14th minute. In the 34th minute, a ball comes over the top, and Pablo Fornals has this amazing first touch on the ball. I've never seen something like it. It hits the ground, and then he stops it with the, 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 his studs, with the bottom of his foot. And he like it's a, just so clean. You should rewatch that highlight. It's so clean. And then he like runs down, and, and you know he's got a one-on-one with a defender and beats him and beats the keeper to score a really quality goal. A goal that I never imagined West Ham being able to score. So um, exciting. And then Jared Bowen kind of seals the deal in the 83rd minute. Um, I saw someone on Twitter called Jared Bowen mid-table Messi, and I love that. He played at Hull for a while before coming to West Ham, and he's looked really solid. He's got Mm. some nice play going forward. I feel like everyone on West Ham is a CDM. Like, that's just their entire team, and then Mikel Antonio. But... um, this was a really quality win for uh, West Ham. On the other side of the ball, uh, Leicester looks, in in my opinion, looks pretty limited. I thought they controlled the ball well in the start of the game, but it seemed like what they were trying to do was just try to hit long balls over the top. That was like their main strategy and the way to break break down this very well organized West Ham defensive side. And West Ham just was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Aaron Cresswell was excellent for West Ham in both his distribution. He assisted both of the, the goals to Mikel Antonio and to Fornals. And in his defense, he was also great. Um, really, really strong performance from him. Not a player you're going to see getting like a, a ton of love. I don't think he's particularly flashy, but I thought he was excellent. Uh, yeah, both, both, both sides of the ball in this game. I think the, the other thing on my mind about this one is that West Ham have won two games in a row, and David Moyes has coronavirus. I hope he's recovering and doing well. But he's been coaching from his house because he's in quarantine. So he's doing a little, like, Zoom coaching. And 
I just wonder if like, is that the future? Is it just like, <laughs> I hope not <laughs> <laughs> chilling. And I, I just imagine David Moyes is like a really big, like Earl Grey tea drinker. He's got like a plaid robe that he sits in with the slippers by the fire. And then he's on like his giant, really old, uh, desktop computer with like the attached webcam on the top <laughs> and the whole time picture. he's like <laughs> leaned in like your grandparents on uh, FaceTime. That's what I imagine he's like Zoom managing, but he, maybe it works. Maybe it works. I hope he's just screaming into the mic and the guy on the other side is just trying to furiously write down everything that's said and make it make some kind of sense of it. Uh, um, um, and I, I guess the, the other thing that I'm thinking about um, was on that last goal that they scored, there, there seemed like there was some disorganization in Leicester defensively that – kind of surprised me i think lester is a side that i view to be pretty smart in the way that they're defensively set up and yeah telemans he was kind of tracking back and he was sort of trying to play jared bowen off sides but he couldn't quite decide and then that moment of indecision from him and soyanchu kind of like throws off like are we running the trap are we actually tracking back on our man like what are we doing and uh west ham really exploited that um thoughts on this game West Ham Leicester. I, lo- I, had a, I have a lot of thoughts. I think you actually covered a good amount of them, so I'll just try to stick to the ones that I feel like are are, are, are the most interesting. One, um, you make this point about two things. One, that they're struggling and it keeps and the, or Leicester struggles and keeps sending these long balls over the top. Also, the man mark uh, for Ogbana on on Vardy. What's really interesting is. I don't know if anybody noticed this, but West Ham's rotation um, from when they transition to offensive defense. So uh, let me kind of, if you can kind of, you know, imagine a little whiteboard, I'll draw up in your mind here. So West Ham's lineup, and we can think of this as their lineup in offense, is a 4-2-3-1. And the three is, it's got Pablo Fornals in the center, uh, Bowen on the right, and Masuaku on the left. But if you watch that game and you watch every time Liverpool or sorry, Liverpool, Leicester gets possession of the ball and brings it up, there's five in the back. It's a five man line. And in the middle of that is Ogbana, who then kind of has more freedom to check into that space in between the midfield line and the and the defenders, which is essentially where Vardy checks back when he can't find the ball through, right? right so if right. you're if you're sitting deep, that's the thing he's gonna check back. So he gets but when he steps up, there's still four men behind. So how are they getting five in the back, right? Because think about it. Four, two, three, one, where is that extra defender coming from? And he's gotta be coming from the outside left right because Agbana is sliding into the middle well what's happening here is Masuaku is dropping left all the way into the back line and Fornals is shifting into his possession into his position and they create a 5-4-1 so there's a couple things that are super interesting about this one I've already mentioned it frees up Agbana to run into those check balls. So that middle space in between the two is, is, is essentially all him. Second, 
when you play against a 4-2-3-1, those two guys on the outside, in this case, would have been Bowen and Masuaku. They tend to be the vulnerability because a lot of times on offense, they're going to push forward, making it look like a 4-3-3. And that keeps those lanes open. And when you play a team like Leicester, that's exactly what they want. They want to get the ball into those lanes behind the outside of those three because they can make combination play there to beat the guy, send in the ball, find, or if they step, send the through ball. But because of this rotation, they're meeting a 5-4-1, which is a really tough spot. And so where do they end up going? Central. They get getting pushed central. And this game for me is all about Suchek and Declan Rice. Suchek does an excellent job defending. And what it means for, for, for West Ham is good defense usually means great opportunities for a transition. And that's definitely the case in this game. Ball are getting pushed central. They're getting lost. And when they get lost in the center, there's that opportunity to send the long ball. And Antonio is that guy. He is that man who is sitting deep, waiting for those three balls. And he really makes the most of the pressure. Ends up kind of end up having to stretch Lester pretty wide. Because every time they lose the ball, defense is dropping back. You know, offense has to drop back. Then offense goes back up, gets pushed to the center. It kind of just kept happening over and over again. Um, and I, I, the West Ham, I mean, I, I assume... And it feels like it has to have been planned, this West Ham rotation, because without it, it's a totally different game. And it's clear what roles are taking place. As well, I think this also opens opportunity for Nalls, because every time Fornals goes with the attack, where is he going? He's running from outside towards the center, which is a great it's a great it's a great run because when you receive the ball, instead of receiving it facing backwards, you're facing forwards on the run with an overlap automatically from Masuaku. So I thought that was a really cool rotation happening. If you watch that game, just watch the way they do it. It's subtle, it's not a big deal, but they do it every single time Lester sets up for offense. And I thought that was that was just really cool. Um that was awesome to hear that level of analysis on that switch. I think when I was watching, I wasn't really thinking about the way that the shape was changing um, on both sides of the ball to accommodate that man marking. But that makes a lot of sense. Um, we're going to shift gears to maybe someone who needs to take a Zoom coaching break, Pep Guardiola. Uh, maybe he should take on the David Moyes coach from home type attitude type play here. Um, yeah, I wanted to hear about your thoughts on Man City. Oh. Man City leads. Okay, so this was a game I believe you said was going to be a smash, and I was. I I, you did. did. I did. You did. And 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 as as we see here, one one tie uh, for Man City and Leeds. Like I said, it it was a closer game um, than I thought most people would predict it to be. Um, Like I said, I, I thought the reason that would happen is because. Man City would play that high possession game, and I thought Leeds would sit tight, and then Leeds would kind of explode out on on offense, um, and that that actually suit them pretty well. Um, it didn't quite happen that way though, and this was actually I thought a really interesting thing as well. If you want to look at a tactical kind of game plan that's a little unique. Man City does a really interesting thing here, which is that they do play a good amount of possession uh, in the first half. But when they do play that possession, and it's not as frequent as it has been in other games, they tend to play it on their half of the field, like 10 yards, 5 to 10 yards on their half of the field. And I thought this was a great idea because it invites Leeds out. Leeds clearly wanted to press. I don't know why, but they clearly wanted to press that, that, that ball. And it, it created more space behind. So I thought that that was you know, a decent idea. I liked that. 
The second thing was that as, as although they were playing that possession, they really would seem to be playing more of the counter. You see some through balls to like Sterling on the left, mostly um, kind of making quick runs into the 18 or, or towards the 18, I should say, and then trying to kind of break through. Um, so how is this all working, right? Because they're playing a kind of deep possession and then they're kind of playing this counter. Well, where I figured this out or where I started to see it most was when Leeds would bring the ball out of the back. So look at any of the goal kicks in this first half for Leeds. Leeds brings the ball out of the back and there's a ton of space in the middle of the field. There are three players high pressing the ball and then there's just this huge pocket of space in the middle and the defensive line all set up. So what was super interesting was, and this is what I believe was happening, City was pressing the ball, but leaving the center empty. Now, Leeds is coming out with a 4-1-4-1 formation. So they have these three central players that could be checking to the ball. But as you'll see, only one, that one in front of the defense, is really checking for the ball. And they keep just letting that pass happen. Every time that pass is made, though, Kevin De Bruyne is coming to pick that guy's pocket. He intercepts like three passes in the first half just from that same exact situation. Has a, there's a couple tackles in midfield. They just kept inviting that ball into that space. And so every time they did it, they would lose the ball. And then every time they'd send the ball over the top to try to reach the higher sitting midfielders and the forwards or, and the, the, the lone striker in the center – they weren't, they weren't having it. So in the beginning, things looked solid. Um, Sterling gets a ball in the 15th minute uh, and on, the, on the left side, and he's able to fake a shot, bring down a defender, stretch it, and just curl it into the right-hand side. With a goal that early, I thought, hey, this is the city we know. They're going to come. They're going to put three more at the end of this half. That's going to be the game. Now, that said, uh, they don't score uh, any more goals in that half. Um, and... It, it's it's important to note, and I didn't note this, that this game was rainy as all hell. <laughs> it was wet. They were walking through like a fog of rain the whole time. And given how much you know pressure they were putting um, to challenge these balls in the midfield, you could tell in the second half, Lee, uh, City looked tired. Um, and that transition play starts to look a little better for Leeds. Um, and, and, and City is, is not quite having the same success with, uh, with, the, with, with, with the pressure. Um, now, I forgot. I kind of missed this because I, I kind of forgot because the second half was, a, was a really interesting to me. Um, but uh, uh, let, me, let me just check my notes here. Um, City, uh, in the first half... Um, Sitting in the first half, despite despite all of their good effort, they, they really kind of struggle to get into the 18. They get all the way to the 18, and then they just have a hard time breaking it. Like, Sterling gets that goal early, and so you think that's going to be it. The rest of the game is going to be them getting those spots and taking the shots. But they really have a hard time. Shots are getting deflected, and they're having a hard time breaking in. So the second half they come out, they're looking kind of tired. Um, you know, they're kind of looking for that next goal, but there's a lot more transition play. And Rodrigo is subbed in for Leeds. I believe he's a new transfer, right? Rodrigo got there recently. You got that right. He comes... I think so. And he comes in in the 59th or sorry, in the 56th minute um, and immediately makes an impact. He's fresh legs in the center of the field. He's a player on leads that kind of has a little bit more of that gets the ball, can stand up and is good enough with the ball at his feet that defenders give him some space to work with. He takes a shot 
that is deflected out for a corner. That corner comes in. Ederson makes a mistake, punches the ball off of Mendy. It drops down, and Rodrigo finishes it to tie it 1-1. The rest of the game is a little bit more of uh, a slugfest for for Leeds, Um, and they... End up with all told, a, like a, a also a, a greater expected goals than Manchester City. Um, they have a few one on ones with the keeper, or they have one good one on one and one ball on the left hand side that were both great opportunities that they couldn't quite finish. And City really kind of struggles. There's this one play that really felt like it was going to be the goal that City had worked so hard to get. There's a through ball to Sterling that he essentially dribbles from about 30 yards out like into the box and he tries to cut it to guess dribble the keeper I'm not sure and just can't even get the shot off keeper somehow keeps the hands on it and that right there is the is the is the, is essentially the last opportunity you really see that's a strong one for both and the game ends up tying 1-1 Whew. Duffy, I'm, thoughts. I'm, I'm going to co-opt your last moment here, and maybe this is not going to be a point you agree with. That moment, that run from Sterling, where he got the ball, and, and if you rewatch it, it's right before the half. He essentially runs it into the ground. Like, he killed off that play. I saw him look up at least twice, though, and I was like, Kuniguero is in that starting lineup. He's in the right position, and Sterling lays the ball off to him, and he scores, and they kill this game off 2-0. Two, two and, like, City walk away with this win. I feel like City really missed having a target man in their striker position, in Kuniguero or even Gabriel Jesus. Both hurt. Kuniguero back in training in the squad today, so, you know, working his way back. But I think watching that first half for City, this feels like what's happened to City time and time again is they get out on a lead, they look dominant in the first half, and they just don't kill the game off. Like, they don't get the second goal, they mm-hmm. don't get the lead. KDB hit the post on this, like, amazing strike from way out. It was, on how, a, it was like, three minutes into the game, I believe, right? He hits the left pole or something like that? It got me, like, watching it. It, it was from a foul, and he, like, hits hits the ball, and I was like, he's going, like, he's, he's aiming at the keeper, and I was like, what? And it, like, went the other way. And I thought it was going to go in. Yeah, Ruben Diaz missed a header, header. He probably should have converted in the 12th minute. Um, and yeah, I, I I just felt like they they were missing that like one like attacking piece in the middle who's going to f- really finish the quality chances that are being created. And Raheem Sterling, like that's not really what he's there to do. Like it, he's a winger. He's there to play on the wing. Riyad Mahrez is a winger. He should be playing on the wing. So I feel mm. like there were some. I, I, I want to say, like, that's not to absolve Pep Guardiola. The squad should still be able to beat Leeds, and he should still figure out how to do that. But I do think, like, we see those guys come back in the squad, City will, will look different. Um, Absolutely. One small fact of kind of note for for me was this was the first time that City has been outpossessed um, by a team in the Premier League since January 2019 against Liverpool. Um, and I know... Mm. That possession count is kind of weird because it's passes completed. It's not like total time of possession, but right. I'm not. I I think it's it's a good point. I think it's a good point. I mean, I think that I I don't know if this was done in all of Leeds games, but they definitely leave that pocket of space in the middle and almost essentially are trying to 
like, 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 like you don't see it that often in a way that's like obvious to the viewer, but the, you know, you can have a strategy, which is we are going to break down their buildup. We're going to let them build up, but we're going to, there's a place where we're going to really, you know, destroy or stop that buildup. And that was the way that they did it. And I think it really changed their play style. And I don't think it was for, 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 for worse at all. Um, but, but it was definitely an interestingly, unique way and i thought it almost i wondered if it was because he was playing or pep guardiola was was in a game against you know his his idol bielsa um if maybe he had put a little extra effort or something into it i don't know but maybe it was just by chance but the one thing i do want to say too is that i do think rodrigo could be a real value to leads um and here and, and one of the reasons and the reason why i want to say this is because of what i have learned about how leads attacks so we've kind of mentioned that they're like good and they counter and like but like how do they do that right like what's making them so special I feel like and it might seem like a, an overly simplistic answer, but if you watch this game and you look at the opportunities that they create out of like free play, they almost always involve a combination play, uh, specifically overlapping runs and wall passes, but overlaps especially. They, as a team, are very good at seeing overlap opportunities and making those runs. And those overlap opportunities force defenders to make decisions about who they're going to keep and who they're not going to. And and no matter who you choose to, to switch or not, it always creates this little gap of space and time when a ball can be passed another player and that guy can take a one touch shot. And so whether it's the one-touch shot or the threat of the one-touch shot that creates space to dribble and pl- or, or play another combination play, that's the way that they do things best. Combination plays out of the back, overlapping runs. There's this great cross, I can't remember when, that almost was a goal for Leeds, um, and they, they got that because of the overlap. There was another play uh, that was the overlap that allowed the cross. Another play that I think, I'm trying to remember who it was that was in the back of the six. Um, I believe it was uh, Dallas. He makes an overlapping run as a defender around a forward holding the ball inside the 18, and he, that's the reason he's able to take that shot because of that overlap. So overlaps are very important to them. And Rodrigo, I think, is going to be an asset to them because he can be dangerous without those features. So as a standalone player, he can make things different or make, make, make a difference. And I think that that, that complement will work well in a, in a setting like Leeds where they're making lots of combination plays. He'll look comfortable there. You will want, if you, do, if you do watch this game again, you'll also want to see, I believe it's in the 80th minute, Rodrigo gets his head on a ball. It was kind of a an awkward angle when he puts it back across the goal, and Ederson barely gets like you know three fingertips on it and pushes it over. But it was a floater that could have been the winner really for Leeds uh, in that game as well. So definitely want to check him out. I think he's going to be good things for Leeds moving forward. I can't imagine a situation where a Rodrigo would be a bad <laughs> add to anything like. Rodrigo, boardroom. Rodrigo, law firm. Rodrigo, soccer pitch. Rodrigo, podcast. Why? More, why? More. Why? More. Also, why are there so many Rodrigos coming into the league? We've got that Rodrigo. You've got Rodrigo in City. I've never known like a single other Rodrigo in my life, and now they're just coming to the EPL. It's like it's ruining my still, my still, you know, my my fantasy dreams of going to the EPL one day, and being the only Rodrigo. No, and there's like three of them. Like he had Rodrigo M on the back of his shirt, as if as if he needed to be specified, which he did because there was another Rodrigo on the other team. It's crazy to me. Uh, but enough, enough on the City Leeds game. Another, another important game. Uh, two, uh, two teams that I know little about, but one that I love deeply. Southampton, West Brom. Thoughts, Duffy? How was the game? Um, 
Southampton pulls out the win, 2-0. They beat West Brom. West Brom still struggling to get their feet under them, still struggling to find results. Um, Anthony Robinson, U.S. men's national team player, played it right back for West Brom. Um, excuse me, that's incorrect. He played in the Fulham game. I wrote that down the wrong spot. Scratch that. <laughs> um, no U.S. men's national team player played in this game. There was, however, a Russian who is the manager for West Brom, and they're probably going to interfere in the election. See it all ties in. <laughs> Saved it. Nailed it. Uh, the game, I, I think it, it, it was actually more even than the scoreline suggests. Um, Southampton converted their chances, and West Brom did not, and that really was a difference in this game. Um, Denny Ings had a really nice chance at a header in the 27th minute, just barely missed. I thought for sure that was going in. And then just before the half, I'm not going to be able to say his name right, but Janumbo, I think is how you pronounce his name. Uh, Southampton midfielder. He has a really great goal. Um, he dummies the defender just on the outside. They had 18 cuts in and, and rips a really nice shot to put it past the West Brom keeper. No chance. Um, and then I thought West Brom actually came out pretty strong in the second half and had some really good chances. Uh, Ajayi on a set piece, he just missed uh, one shot that I also thought for sure was going to be going in. Uh, and then Southampton kind of killed the game off. There's this ball, and it, it just sort of goes in the 18, and it bounces around, comes out to Southampton midfielder Romeo. The Spaniard just hits a really great one-time volley to put the game away and make it 2-0. Um, I, one notice that I had from the Southampton game is anytime that Southampton midfielders were picking up the ball or attacking players were picking up the ball, the Southampton wingbacks are just flying up the pitch. You were talking about overlapping and how important that is at Leeds, and that's clearly a huge thing for Ralph Hasselhudel and Southampton is that he wants his wing backs to just have like insane pace and create that give and go for his attacking midfielders and his, his uh, strikers. And I think I, I was just like blown away watching the pace that they had running up and down the pitch. And um, Hasselhudel really wants players who are going to play a very high intensity and uh, play with just a lot of pace through the whole 90 minutes. And that was on full display in this game. It didn't really actually end up contributing to either of the goals in, in, a, in a funny way, but it did stand out to me and just like, this is going to be something that Southampton are going to continue to rely on and they'll start converting chances and, and building off of that. Um, James Ward-Prowse would be a player I would recommend viewers keep your eye on. He's, he, he's been quality for Southampton last year. Another really calm performance from him in midfield, someone who can defend pretty well and also distribute well going forward. Um, exciting player at Southampton. I, I was going to maybe move on to the next game unless you had some quick thoughts on Southampton. No, I mean, I, th I think you go right ahead. Well, the one thing is I do, I, like I said this last week, I love the 4-4-2 from Southampton. It's such a textbook 4-4-2, and it's just like what you said. Those wings are, they every time you get in the ball and you're transitioning to attack, they know my role is to go up into that space, be support for the two central forwards who sometimes kind of like to you know mix and match rather than being flat next to each other. Um, I just love it. I think it just reminds me of how I used to play when I was a kid. We played a lot of 4-4-2 when 
when I was a kid, and it, it just it, it, it's a clean tactical classic. strategy. It works. It's very classic. It's very classic. At least in my my era, my understanding of soccer, classic. Um, it's very classic, and I, I love it. I love it. They're they're good at it. That's that they execute. And it it works well with a good hustle because that kind of thing is all about the hustle on the wings. It's all about getting back, playing a solid four four defense in the back line. Everyone's working together, two chains of defense. I I just love the way they play. Um, but yeah, no, please continue. Take us to Newcastle. Yeah, uh, up on Newcastle Burnley. So Newcastle three, Burnley one. Um, Newcastle. Uh, this is. In any year, I would say it's a quality win to be able to take points against Burnley uh, under Sean Dyche. They've been a very well-organized defensive team. Um, I actually wanted to start with Burnley. There wasn't really a whole lot from them in this game, but I'm sympathetic to a team that's just not really had any action in in the transfer market at all. I think that they signed one player on loan, and I think that they signed another player for like a million pounds, and I don't even remember where he came from. They've just been really, really, really inactive. And they lost midfielder Jeff Hendrick to Newcastle. So he was playing on the other side and starting for Newcastle on the other side. And I don't think he's necessarily like a world-class player, but you're losing a starter and not really replacing him with much. So I just think when you have a team and you've been doing pretty well, if you don't re-up in the transfer market, People aren't competing for their spot. So there just feels like, yeah, you know, you have basically the same back line. You have basically the same defensive setup, but your defenders might lose a step because they're just not feeling the pressure in the same way if you were bringing in new guys. So that really struck me watching this game. Um, and it actually kind of takes me to the the first goal. And that first goal came from uh, St. Maximen, who is back for Newcastle in this game. And he kind of just runs at the Burnley defenders, and it's a four-on-one, and he scores. And I, I thought he made some like a, a nice step over, but it was like it, it, it was like circus music playing in my head. It was watching the Burnley <laughs> defenders like they're running into each other, no idea where they were going, and there's four of them right in front of them. Like one of you step up, and like the rest of you just cover the space, and somehow he scores. And early on, 15th minute, not a goal you'd expect Burnley to ever concede. And then the game kind of just like locked in for the rest of the half. There really wasn't a whole lot of open play. Um, And in the second half, both teams, I think Burnley started to feel the need to go for it a little bit more. And they did pull one back in the 62nd minute. And it had to be like the most textbook Burnley goal. And it's the goal they scored against Arsenal, I feel like I've seen 10,000 times, like the ball comes in off a corner, it bounces around, it goes out to someone, they hit it in, it bounces around, it comes out, and then some Burnley bloke like knocks it in. Oh, Burnley football. And like it was Westwood in this instance, 62nd minute. It's a nice, it's a nice strike from him. It was an, a really nice shot that he put in kind of from the left side. It scores. The game's level. And then Newcastle immediately like press really hard attack. And St. Maximo wins the ball. And he's just faster than the other player than the defender he's going up against on Burnley and it was it's like it wasn't skill he kicked the ball in front of him and then he ran and got it and it was just like twice as fast as the person who he was running against and then he crosses the ball across three Burnley defenders trying to track back and Callum Wilson just taps it in um 
so 2-1 back up to Newcastle. And then in the 76th minute, there's a, a penalty on Nick Pope. He trips up Ryan Frazier of Newcastle, and, and Callum Wilson converts the penalty. It's kind of harsh. I, I don't really – I know it's the rule, but it was like Frazier hits the ball over the goalkeeper, over Nick Pope, and it missed. And then in the fall-through, Nick Pope trips him, and it's like there's no way he was going to score that. Like I, I don't it, – it's it sort of feels like incidental contact. I don't know a better way to describe that. Mm-hmm. Um I guess a couple of thoughts on Newcastle. Just one, Callum Wilson has been a really great addition for them. They struggled creating, like having a good target person up front last year. And he's got four goals in four games and an assist. That's a nice start to the season for for him. And I think he's a good piece that Newcastle have added. And then Newcastle are just a completely different team with St. Maximum on the pitch compared to when they don't have him. Um, I he, he was out with an injury and against Brighton, their expected goals were 0.5. And in this game against Burnley, their expected goals were 1.96. So he, he is driving their offense moving forward. He is like creating their offense moving forward. And yeah, without him, they look super limited. So it, it didn't really surprise me that um, with him back, the squad is going to perform at a really different level. Um, yeah, any thoughts about either of these sides? Nothing to add there, Duffy. And honestly, I think my anticipation has just grown too strong. Too strong. For the next game. The we next save, game. We save yes. something sweet. We save something sweet, listener, for the end. dessert. This is dessert. So get this ready. Is, this is dessert. If not a whole meal <laughs> in and of itself just dedicated to dessert. The last game that we're going to cover here, uh, because our game of the week uh, will be covered in part two, so please stick around to listen to that. The last game we're going to cover here, Manchester United versus Tottenham. Now, I'll just tell you the score right now. If you didn't watch the game, please go watch it immediately before I tell you any more. But the score was Manchester United 1, Tottenham 6. Now, if you just read the quick facts on this, you're going to see a red card. And that's going to tell you that everything came from the red card. But let me tell you, it didn't. Um, And really, to describe this game, I feel like all you need to do is do an in-depth description of, like, the first half. And you understand exactly how this game played out. So Manchester United gets a PK within, like, the first literal 30 seconds of play. And it, it really feels like... It feels like stereotype, meme, and reality are just beginning to merge. Um, and, I, and I'm totally, I mean, I'm totally willing to accept that that's the new reality, only because that's what 2020 has brought me to. 1-0 Manchester United, you think. And they're all so happy. They're stoked to have gotten the early goal. And three minutes later, there's a throw-in on Manchester's half uh, on the left-hand side. There's a throw-in. And first thing that happens, Pogba tries to clear the ball. It it's, looks like a high kick, but there's no call. And instead of kicking the ball anywhere useful, he ends up kicking it back into the 18. Now, Maguire heads the ball off of the bounce, and he essentially heads it uh, into Bailey. Now, it bounces off of Bailey straight up into the air, right? So, McGuire's trying to head this ball out, heads it into Bailey, goes off to Bailey straight in the air. 
Now, Bailey, I believe, is trying to, to hit the ball forward again, but inadvertently sends it deeper into the box. It's as if there's a magnet in the goal just drawing this ball closer. Now, again, it comes to McGuire. And certainly this seems like this is, okay, two bad mistakes, but McGuire's here to clear this out. He goes for the header, and this one seems like it's intended to go towards the goal, as if to play it back to De Gea for, you know, to, to handle the ball. But it falls about halfway between him and De Gea. Now, as it's falling, it falls in front of none other than Luke Shaw. And Luke Shaw has Lamella on him. And as he shields Lamella off of the ball, Maguire recovers and gets behind both of them and essentially has his hands on both of their shoulders, one on each, and is kind of trying to drag them down ends up dragging down Luke Shaw along with Lamella, sort of, kind of. And the ball, now loose, is banged home by, who was it? Ndombele. Absolute wackiest goal. It's 1-1. The game is level. I'm pretty sure Twitter exploded. It was this, it was literally a circus act. Um, if anybody had had, if anybody had watched this game had skipped like the last, I don't know, 10 or so games of Manchester United, they probably would have been doing a massive investigation for throwing this game. Um, but, but as we've seen recently, this is no real surprise. Now the, the game only gets crazier from there. Two minutes later, two minutes later, uh, there's a long ball out of the back from Tottenham. That comes to Harry Kane in the air. Maguire goes goes to Harry Kane to put pressure. A clumsy tackle. Like, just essentially takes him down. Uh, A foul is called. And Kane, barely back to his feet, plays the ball immediately through to Son. Who essentially sprints onto the ball into the 18. Gets one-on-one with De Gea and just flicks it past him to the right. And it rolls into the goal. Or it bounces into the goal on the right-hand side. 2-1 Tottenham. So from a 30-second PK, within five minutes, we're now up 2-1 Tottenham. And to be clear, there are no red cards at this point. Hold on. Now the next, yes, please jump in. You you mentioned red card. There should have been a red card. There should have been a red card. What what Harry Maguire did to Luke Shaw was wrong, and he should have been carded for it. If you did that to a Tottenham player, it would have been a sending off. If you do it to your own player, it should also be a sending off. That was straight up assault. I would describe it as assault. Sorry, I had to say that. No, I had please, to say please, that. please. Keep keep going. Red card. So we're at two. I, I want to talk the red card too. Oh, oh, we will, we will. So it's 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 two one now, and it's seven minutes into the game. Now, the next twenty minutes of play start to kind of swing back and forth. Seems like we're watching an actual game of soccer now. And there's nearly constant transition. There's fast breaks from both players kind of running freely through the midfield. There's phases of possession, but they almost seem like more of an opportunity to catch your breath than any kind of like effective buildup for either team. Now, one occasion sees this beautiful run through from Rashford that ends with a ping off the left bar. It comes back out, so it's not a goal, but it's called offsides. So, albeit an amazing shot and, and beautiful run, it's, it's not technically legal, so... It's offsides, nothing there. Now, if this had continued to be the rhythm of the game, I feel like it would have probably been a slugfest. Um, and, and I'm not sure who would have established dominance, right? So from my perspective, on the one hand, right, 
this is the kind of situation that United's offense can play very well in. Kind of a frenetic midfield where, you know, opposing defenses are like urgently in transition kind of all the time and they can find just like one through ball to someone like Rashford who can finish it, right? But on the other hand, you see this beautiful 40-yard ball in the 25th minute to Sun. Um that kind of shows the other side of the coin, which is that Tottenham has the speed and the artillery up top to be lethal on the counter. So I, I felt like, you know, if Sun hadn't taken that poor touch and missed the chance there, that could have could have been a goal and really shows that, that United's defense is fragile. So at that point, I'm like, okay, 2-1, but it looks like it's anybody's game. Um, to kind of like prove the point, I'm pretty sure if you watch that 20 minutes, right at the tail end of it, Tottenham has like three or four shots on goal, starting to look like maybe they can even, you know, grab one quick here. And then things become tragic for United. Tragic. A, a tragic. A Tottenham corner in the 29th minute has Martial marking Lamella in the box. Now, I'm going to try to describe this as just objectively as I can so that we can discuss this at a later point. But it seems like Lamella is the first person to engage contact, and he pushes away at Martial with his with his elbow arm, not outstretched, really with the elbow and the forearm, and he kind of hits him in the chest, and it kind of sweeps up under his neck a little bit and kind of brushes off. And Martial, I think like any reasonable person, you know, uh, it, it, you know, in, in a normal setting, just pops him right back on the right side. This is like an open hand. I don't know if it was a punch, but just kind of pops him in the face, like, like maybe a cat would pop you if they were upset with you. Whistle is blown, and a red card is shown to Martial. Now, nothing at that time is shown to Lamella. Later, he's given a yellow card for, uh, for, the, for the infraction. But Martial is sent off, and, and United are down to 10 men. Now, you might say at this point, well, it was 2-1, the red card. Of course, United's going to struggle. But honestly, you would think that while that's a death sentence, that would be the reason that they get scored on. But in fact, Manchester United finds a way to get scored on that have nothing to do with Martial missing. <laughs> seconds after the red card. I mean, literal seconds. I think it's the next play. Uh, United try to play out of the back on a goal kick. And they, you know, any reasonable person asking themselves why the heck you would even do that. You're a man down. You're playing out of your own 18. But they do. A straight pass from Bailey inside his own 18 leads to like a quick one-two combination and Son essentially returns the favor, pass to Kane, and Kane slots one deep in the corner. 3-1. So now you might think, well, okay, and from there on, it's the red card's fault. It's not. Seven minutes later, United is defending build-up play from Tottenham on the left and, or well, right, depends on who you're thinking about, on one side, and they leave this just this like 20 square yard square like square yards of space on the opposite side it's completely open this very simple long ball it's not even a particularly well balanced ball it's a little hard sent in the space Arie runs into there gets to the ball brings it to the 18 sends a ball on the ground it goes through Maguire's legs Sun meets it at the front of the six with the finesse of an angel and nutmegs De Gea at the first post. It's 4-1 Tottenham. So it, I, I want to be clear. Let's go to the time. It's At this point, they've scored four goals in 37 minutes. Uh, and, and, it's, and, it, and eventually it boils down there from halftime. After the game, I mean, after the, 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 after the, the first half, 
you know, that's when the red heart red card seems to really kick in. United in shambles. Tottenham runs the clinic. Aria scores a beauty. Pogba ends up following Kane for a PK, and those two goals are you know make you know bring it up to six one. But you know at that point it seemed like United had pretty much had given up at that point. Um, just an absolutely bonkers game from the first minute to the essentially the last, but certainly that first half. Um, I think this spells a disaster for United in a way that's just a little more obvious than it already was. Um, but I'm Duffy, tell me, what are your thoughts? Where, where, where do we get into this discussion? Cause I know there's, there's plenty here to unpack. Uh, so many, I guess maybe working backwards a little bit. Um, son, after he scored that goal to make it four one, he's dancing in a celebration and I'm sure there's some like self-righteous, United fan who's going to get all on their high horse about how it's poor sportsmanship. I love that. Dance on their graves. I love that. I hate Tottenham and I hate Manchester United, but that is a kind of ruthlessness that I want. Like if, if I'm a Spurs fan, that's what I want to see my team doing. I want to see them <laughs> dancing in their faces and laughing and United, you know what? Do I feel bad for you all on that red card? Cause that is like, it, it's just unjust. Like, Lamella hits him first and then Lamella like gets this little tap in the face and then he stands there for a second and then wilts. It's just like so totally pathetic and lame that that's a red card, but you deserve it. Manchester United, you deserve it. You guys are the absolute worst. And this has been the luck that you've had. You've had this coming in like the biggest way ever. (laughs) And I, I feel zero sympathy for you. Listener, just so you know, he's currently taking the pins out of the doll right now and i believe it says manchester united across the top it's clear duffy's been waiting for this moment he's been building up just the curses he must be putting on you i want to be clear though i i I actually think that uh that these were the right calls the yellow and the red do you want to open that box right now do you want to open the pandora's box i actually don't disagree with you in the letter of the rule you can't Mm. hit a player in the face and that's how it goes and like i think lamella is just this is the kind of stuff that he does routinely he's so smart about it he playing, he's playing the game. And I'm not going to fault That's someone true. for playing the game. Like, you got to hate the player. Don't hate the game is a saying. But in this case, like, I kind of hate the game. You just hate I, both. <laughs> I just hate both. I just hate both. I just hate both. I got totally in my head on that one. But uh, I, I, I do think, it, you know, it's a red card. And Martial needs to have more discipline to not do that. Yes. That being said, Harry Maguire, if he comes out with the captain's armband for Manchester United – this club is finished. Like you cannot put in a performance like that at a club with this kind of history mm. and level of expectation from fan base and be the captain. It's absurd to me how poor that was, but I don't even want to stop there. Aaron Juan Basaka was awful. And that goal that you talked about where Harry Kane just like fell, stood up, released the ball on the foul and, and sent it mm-hmm. through. Aaron Juan Basaka is just like standing hands in his pockets and he's supposed to be marking the man and he's nowhere to be found. Eric Bailly, awful. Like no business being a starting center back for a team like Manchester United. But, you know, United have spent outrageous sums of money. They have the highest wage bill in the Premier League and their fans still complain about not backing their manager. And I'm like, you know what? Like also get a better manager. Because Ole is also crap. So you've got crap pieces in the back. You have a crap manager. And 
I wouldn't even necessarily stop there. Paul Pogba, I'm really starting to lose my trust and belief in that guy. I was looking back through Manchester United results, and I think the last time I remember watching a United game and feeling like Paul Pogba was pulling the strings and running the show was all the way back in, I think it's it's 2019, when the season started and Manchester United beat Chelsea 4-0. And it was sort of this like smash start first game of the year. And it was like, whoa, like United are going to be for real this year. And Pogba looked amazing. And I talked to a friend who's a United supporter about this. And he was like, yeah, Pogba just doesn't care. Like he, he doesn't really care about getting coached. He's fine being mediocre. He's getting paid. And like for United, that's just like he, he's just going to coast through. And I... I have a higher opinion of Paul Pogba. I think he's a, you know, he's a professional. I think he does care. I don't want to really like even entertain the thought of these guys not caring. Um, but at some point, the performance needs to level up to like what we view Paul Pogba as. And he has not been great. And he was not great in this game. He looked totally like lackadaisical as soon as that red card happened. And I guess my last big point too is. You can go down to 10 men, and that can cost you a game, right? Like, it's really hard to play a man down, and we shouldn't have the expectation that you're going to win. But the way that they folded was just pathetic. Like, I I bring everything back to Arsenal. That's a flaw. I'm working on it. But last season, Arsenal went down to Chelsea, and they went down 10 men, and they still pulled out a draw. And, like, that... Was a was a result, I think, of an Arsenal team that just like had belief in itself and was under leadership, where it was like, "Yo, we can do this! Like, come on! Like, let's get that drive going." And I don't see anyone in the Manchester United side who's doing that. It's not Ole, and it's not anyone on the pitch who's like instilling the confidence to be like, "Come on! Like, you know, we're, we go down, but pick up your heads and let's move forward." So major red flags here yeah right i agree i i I mean i i agree with i think a good amount of what you're saying i think the biggest problem with manchester united is the coach i don't think that ole is adding value to this team i don't think he's implementing a structure that people are you know unifying around i think he's honestly the biggest problem i think that their you know personnel could help in some of the weaker places on the field perhaps some defenders whatever it is but at the end of the day, I really don't think – like, for example, if the problem is that Paul Pogba doesn't want to play, then I want a manager in there that's going to deal with that, right? If we're having trouble with defenders in the back, you know what? Uh, you need to bring in a coach that knows how to coach that, knows, knows, knows how to structure his defense in a way that he knows is going to be effective that allows people to compensate for one another. We're going to be so tight as a unit that even though as an individuals we're not great – we're not going to be found vulnerable all the time, right? Like some of these things I think just require better structure that everyone can kind of coalesce around. And so to me, Ole's the biggest problem. Um, I think he is a problem, not in the sense that he's doing necessarily something wrong. I just don't think he's doing very much at all. Um, and you see even when like the the goal, the red card comes out. And the, I mean, I don't know what I expect from coaches. Maybe I expect them to be a little bit, you know, more fiery and, and, and yelling at things, but he just looks defeated already. I mean, he already looks like he's bitten off all the nails he can. And he's like, well, what am I supposed to do now? You know, I have no more nails to bite. This game is, uh, this game, we just got a red. I guess that's it. I, I don't, I don't feel like he's the kind of guy that's going to bring leadership to that team. And like you said, I don't necessarily see anybody on the field doing that either. 
Um, and you need one of them, if not both. Uh, and if I had to have one of them, it would be the coach. <laughs> so I think he's the biggest problem for United. Um, I think that that's where you can make the biggest improvement, like value over replacement. He's the guy to replace. And I think that people's desire to like get more support for him or like get him better players in the window. It's, it's, I think it's wasted effort. Um, I, I, I think that they should be trying to find a new coach and somebody who is either got ideas already ready for this team or at least has shown that he has a track record of, of being able to bring teams together. Um, that's, what I, that's what I would look for uh, in, a, in a next manager, but I think that's the biggest challenge for them. I, I don't want to neglect them. Spurs are scary. They're scary good. Oh, they, they really good point. Expo- We've neglected them. They really exploited the weaknesses in this game. Jose, I thought, had his team set up in a way that was smart. Um, and, yeah, Spurs really look like they're clicking, and Gareth Bale hasn't played a second for them. So I'm I'm mildly terrified of, of what they're about. They had a slow start to the season, but I really think that um, Jose Mourinho is, is, is getting together. And Endon Bele is, really looks like he's changing – the, the, the shape of both that attack and that midfield. Um, Jose, at the end of the game, he had an all-time quote. Notorious, park the bus, no offense. He said, um, I think it was something to the effect of like, yeah, you know, we scored six with a defensive-minded manager. Imagine how many we would have scored if we had an offensive-minded manager for the team. And I was like, wow. Jose Mourinho, you absolute troll. I love you, and I hate you so much at the same time. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I think that 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 Spurs are a, a really quality team, and Regulon has been a great piece to add, add to that defense. And Add to their attack going forward. He, he was creating some good chances. So that's going to be a really fun team to watch um, for the rest of the year. 100%. Okay, well, on that note of me continuing to praise Tottenham and feel extremely weird about it, I think uh, we should wrap up. And, yeah, we've got a second part to the episode. Doing something different. Uh, what- second half, baby. What do people have to look forward to if they're going to join us for the second half? Uh, first, the one game that we didn't cover in the in these games so far, and one that I'm sure everyone wants to hear about, Liverpool, Aston Villa, Barnburner. Definitely want to listen to that. Second, uh, we're going to cover our technical question for the week, which is about the offsides trap. How to use the offsides trap, when to use it. And as you're going to hear, it's a probably important piece to understanding how the Liverpool game went the way that it did. Um, so those both to look forward to. Excellent preview and excellent as always to talk with you this week, Rodrigo. Looking forward My to it again. My pleasure. Talk to you soon.